Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is the morning after. We are continuing to sort out what we learned yesterday from the January 6th committee. Of course, uh, the big headline news was the subpoena of uh, Donald Trump testimony, which I'm, I'm sorry to have the spoiler alert here testimony, which is uh, unlikely to actually happen. But that doesn't mean that what happened yesterday was not consequential. So in case you missed it, just a little bit of the flavor of yesterday's January 6th select committee hearing. Mr. Chairman, the violence and lawlessness of January 6th was unjustifiable. But our nation cannot only punish the foot soldiers who stormed our capital. Those who planned to overturn our election and brought us to the point of violence must also be accountable. With every effort to excuse or justify the conduct of the former president, we chip away at the foundation of our republic. Indefensible conduct is defended. Inexcusable conduct is excused. Without accountability, it all becomes normal and it will recur. There has to be some way we can maintain the sense that people have that there's uh, some security or some confidence uh, that government can function and that we can elect the president of the United States. Did we go back into session? We did go back into session, but now apparently everybody on the floor is putting on tear gas masks to prepare for a breach. Well, I'm trying to get more information. They're putting on their tear gas masks. I can't. We need an area for the council members. They're all walking over now through the tunnels. They're just breaking windows. They're doing all, all kinds. Of, it's really that somebody. They said somebody was shot. It's just. It's just. Horrendous and all at the instigation of the President of the United States. Knowing that he had lost and that he had only weeks left in office, President Trump rushed to complete his unfinished business. One key example is this President Trump issued an order for large scale U.S. troop withdrawals. He disregarded concerns about the consequences for fragile governments on the front lines of the fight against ISIS and Al Qaeda terrorists. Knowing he was leaving office, he acted immediately and signed this order on November 11th, which would have required the immediate withdrawal of troops from Somalia and Afghanistan, all to be complete before the Biden inauguration on January 20th. According to the source of the tip, the Proud Boys plan to march armed into D.C. They think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. armed, the source reported, and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. The source went on to say their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. The source also made clear that the Proud Boys had detailed their plans on multiple websites like the Donald.win. Just a few days before the election, Steve Bannon, a former Trump chief White House strategist, an outside advisor to President Trump, spoke to a group of his associates from China and said this. And what Trump's going to do is declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. 
but that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to claim himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. And every American is entitled to those answers so we can act now to protect our republic. So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Those in favor will say aye. 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 Those opposed is no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. So to sort all of this out on this weekend podcast, we are lucky to be joined by Denver Riggleman, former congressman from Virginia, senior technical advisor to the January 6th committee. He was an Air Force intelligence officer, a contractor for the National Security Agency, and the author of the new controversial new book, The Breach, which covers some of the key parts of the committee's investigation. Denver, welcome back on the podcast. Hey, Charlie. Great to be here. So I wrote this morning, look, of course, Donald Trump lied. Of course, he tried to overturn a free and fair election. I mean, of course, he fomented a violent insurrection. And of course, he sabotaged the peaceful transfer of power. We know all of this. He's told us he did this. He celebrated it. The committee reminded us the evidence is overwhelming and damning. So the only question now is whether America actually cares. So I just want to get your take. You've watched this. You have been immersed in all of the data. Has the committee made the case the U.S. versus Donald J. Trump? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, I've, I've been saying this when you look at, you know, the lack of fitness for office, belief in unhinged conspiracy theories. I would say his violation of every principle of leadership, ethics and integrity and morality, what he put out on social media, sort of his culpability and radicalization how he directed really his lieutenants when he talk about in the legal, political, and judicial spheres to overturn an election, looking at executive orders that were, you know, sort of misplaced and misused. The fact that there certainly were White House phone numbers that were attached to rally planners that maybe had one link separation from Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and specifically to Oath Keepers and DOJ charged defendants. When you're looking at the legal strategies that he wanted to employ, the arguments that you had behind closed doors, you know, with people like Rosen and Cipollone, when you look at that type of interviews that you saw, those type of depositions, and then when you see Cassidy Hutchinson and people like that talking about him removing the magnetometers, all of this leads to this thing that we have about Donald Trump is that he really is a tool of online trolls and conspiracy theorists. And his attitude toward America is so flippant and disrespectful that nobody should think that he's fit for office. In that way, the committee has succeeded. The headline out of the committee hearing was uh, the 9 nothing vote to subpoena Donald Trump, which uh, strikes me as largely symbolic because it's unlikely he is going to sit under oath for any sort of testimony. There's a very limited uh, clock. This morning, or was it this morning or was it last night, he issued this, what, like a 14-page response to the committee. Right. Thankfully, you read it. I have not read it. 
I mean, it looked like something that the Unabomber in one of his, you know, less lucid moments would would, would, would put out. <laughs> so, Denver, just g- give me a sense of, of what Trump is saying the morning after. What he's saying, if I could break this down, you know, for the audience really yeah. quickly, is it's a combination of Peter Navarro's Immaculate Deception document, Jenny Thomas belief systems. Jesus. Rudy Giuliani believes this, some Sidney Powell draft executive orders and her wanting to use executive order 13848 to rationalize seizing voting machines and employing the Insurrection Act uh, and deploying military troops. Phil Waldron and his briefing that Meadows initially provided to the committee on foreign interference and the pathetic, bizarre, self-identified cyber and PSYOP experts who said the election was stolen by a combination of China, Venezuela, and Italian satellites, and many more. That's exactly how it read. And this sort of self-aggrandizing, this this narcissistic way of saying he had the biggest crowd ever on January 6th, and then talking about the committee not looking into election fraud. And that's that's where it should be, you know, notwithstanding the legal cases and the fact that this has been disproven on a level that's epic. So in reading this, it really was almost as if, you know, a combination of Peter Navarro, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Phil Waldron, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and Jenny Thomas were screaming in his ear to write this screed. It is absolutely the ramblings of a madman. So essentially, it's this bubbling stew of batshit crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You watched the, the the hearing yesterday. I'm interested in, and obviously, you've been immersed in a lot of the detail. One of the, you know, one of the challenges, of course, is you know when you have millions of documents, you know, thousands of tweets, and maybe millions of of emails, all of this data to step back and say, okay. What are the the top lines? What are the dazzling details? So, you know, stepping back from from this hearing, for you, what were the highlights? What struck you as the as the most powerful moments of of that hearing? It was mostly a summation. I mean, I knew all of it. I think you know what struck me was the Secret Service text messages or their communications, which really I already sort of knew about. I mean, listen, we know about the massive security intelligence operations and logistics breakdown on January 6th with U.S. Capitol Police. And and the fact is there was just a lot of incompetence happening there. And, and the, you know, the lack of, you know, communications and intelligence sharing struck me. But the thing that struck me the most, I don't know if it surprises people, was the November 11th order and Millie's testimony about the non-standard practices of a bunch of low-level hacks trying to push orders for the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that was on November 11th. I absolutely, it's sort of tangentially, I would say, related to January 6th, but Charlie, let me tell you, that right there alone, listen, if January 6th didn't happen and that came out, I think that right there alone shows you when General Milley said non-standard, how non-standard the Trump administration was, but really just how insane the Trump administration was. Do you know or have a sense of what happened with the security breakdown? What happened with the Secret Service? I recall, actually, you were tweeting before the riot on January 6th that all of the red lights were blinking. There was all sorts of indication. So why was there not more security at the Capitol? Why did the Secret Service and the FBI not take this more? Why were we caught so completely unprepared? There definitely were intelligence documents uh, from FBI field offices from other areas that were funneling into the United States Capitol Police. The issue was they were sort of buried in a bureaucratic landslide of documents and reports. And I think when you have people that can't really understand what radicalization looks like, I think you had really sort of the, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil 
sort of monkeying around in the bureaucratic layers that couldn't make a decision. So when you look at the United States Capitol Police, and what a lot of people don't understand is that the, the House Sergeant Arms and the Senate Sergeant Arms are actually appointed uh, by the leaders of the respective houses. So McConnell appoints the Senate Sergeant Arms and Pelosi the House Sergeant Arms. The architect of the Capitol is confirmed by the Senate, and the United States Capitol Police Chief does not have a vote on that Capitol Police Board of those three individuals that actually make of it. The fourth member, the Capitol Police Chief, does not have a vote. So he had to officially ask for National Guard response. And I write about that in my book, The Breach, is that you know General Honoré just eviscerated this bureaucratic meltdown and incompetence of intelligence and communications that was coming from you know, this board. That's why everybody was fired and things of that nature. But really what it comes down to is that there was just incompetence and the speed of technology is not there. The issue that we have, Charlie, and even with the committee and the critiques that I have of that, which are not personal, they've done a fine job, but is that we can't solve today's problems tomorrow with yesterday's technology. Mm-hmm. We can't do that anymore. We have to look at this as an information warfare battle space. And the untold story of January 6th is the data. It's the fact that we're in a new forever war. And I just, I'm just sort of stunned uh, that we're still 15 months after the committee started, almost two years later, we're just now getting to a subpoena of Donald Trump. And then when you flip it on the other side, it was a great job of getting that many people together. But with the thousands of interviews you talk about and the millions and or the thousands of documents, there's tens of millions of lines of data uh, on a command and control level that we still need to look into more. So I want to get to your critique of, of that in a moment. Um, just staying with what happened yesterday, I thought that one of the more effective things they did, I mean, you know, again, the, the committee has multiple you know jobs, including investigating, trying to figure out what happened, but then also communicating that uh, to the court of public opinion. And I thought that the the montage that they showed of what Donald Trump knew and then what he said was very powerful, especially when when all of the, the testimony, you know, Bill Barr says, you know, I told him this was complete bullshit. The next day he goes out and, you know, Trump goes out and says exactly the same thing. Richard Donahue says, you know, everything you're hearing is complete bullshit. There's no truth. Trump repeats the lie. Bill Barr, again, specifically tells him, you know, this did not happen in Pennsylvania. And Donald Trump just keeps rinsing and repeating. I thought that that was very, very powerful. And again, there's a, there's a lot of things that struck me about this, including the tape of how Nancy Pelosi and was actually asking for, uh, you know, on the phone, asking for help while Donald Trump was sitting in the uh, dining room of the White House, uh, tweeting out attacks on, on Mike Pence. But let, let's go to some of these details. Uh, you wrote in the book very extensively about Roger Stone, and and you created this phone link map for Roger Stone, uh, one of the you know high profile figures here. So, what do we make of uh, Stone's role in all of this? They they showed a, a you know brief clip of him basically saying you know that even before the election you're going to say no, we won, fuck you, you know let's uh, let's you know skip the voting and get right to the violence. Of all people on earth, what role did Roger Stone play in Donald Trump's planned insurrection? If I had two words to sum it up, it would be the ultimate facilitator. You know, when you look back to 2016 and, you know, sort of the origination of the Stop the Steal movement as it looked like a cohesive strategy, that was stoned, you know, as they were preparing for the the Hillary Clinton election. But you also look at, at his contacts and what he's actually said and his past performance. And Charlie, past performance is sometimes indicative of future performance. And this is a felon. This is somebody who's slimy. Right. And, and look at who he actually associates with, whether it's Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, other right wing extremist groups. 
he actually self-identifies. He's with those individuals. And then when you see somebody who fought his call detail records, he didn't want to give them to us. And yet we still can run his number against links and know he was in direct contact with Enrique Terrio and, and Stuart Rhodes. It's very difficult to not allow common sense and analysis to come together to look at Roger Stone as sort of the middle of a hub and spoke operation that really, you know, sort of encompasses a legislative strategy, an executive strategy, and a judicial strategy. He's close to the president, and he's connected to the rally planners, whether if you look at Alex Alexander, or you look at the Carolyn Wrens, you look at the Katrina Pearsons. He's connected to the right-wing extremists, and he's connected to the White House and the Trump family. That's pretty strong. It's pretty compelling. But then we have something else. Oh, my. We have something else. How about his assistant, Kristen Davis? Maybe she doesn't practice operational security as well as other people. Maybe we do get her call records. Mm. And then we see she's the one who's also in touch with Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Now you have the assistance of what I call the four horsemen of the Grifterverse, with Sidney Powell leading it, right? When you look at these individuals like Roger Stone, Kristen Davis was one of his communication routes. You know, Alex Jones, who did he have? Owen Schroyer. When you look at Mike Flynn, you had Tim Enloe. When you look at hmm. Steve Bannon, he had Alexander Priet. Now, you don't know if these individuals actually know what they're doing or saying, but these communication paths then open to rally planners or other extremist groups. I, I heard a, an anchor yesterday go, well, there's almost nothing else we can learn about January 6th. And I actually laughed out loud. Hmm. You know, the command and control infrastructure and the tens of thousands of links between certain groups and the millions of links that we have with text messages, whether they're MMSs or SMSs, when you're looking at VoIP numbers or you're looking at standard phone calls, whether they're landline or cell phones, it's massive link maps, massive clusters of individuals that for somebody who's done counterterrorism forever can see those centers of gravity and say, holy crap, the organization here was even more than we can imagine. And that's why I wrote the book again. It wasn't to critique the committee. It's that we have so much more to do in this space because we are losing. They are winning. You know, there's YouTube channels that have more people watching in the far right than watch CNN. You know, I get very frustrated because I'm not trying to be some kind of, you know, chicken little. But if, if we don't understand the threat and what a domestic terrorism attack is like January 6th, if we don't understand the threat or we put our heads in the sand or we're just worried about politics and optics every freaking damn day instead of just following the data when the data is hot, when it's there right now. We're going to be in big trouble. It's not me, you know, screaming at people or saying the committee did a bad job. That book wasn't even about that if people read it, because you did, obviously. It's not about that. It's about the data is the new superhero. That's the untold story. And if we don't have technology, if we don't have the ability to have our facts-based analysis go against these facts-challenged individuals, we're in real trouble. What are you talking about there? Are you talking about actual real, real-time government surveillance of all of this? No. How would this happen? I think it's understanding that we're in house-to-house -house warfare with people that are easily radicalized when you have people by Trump and their individuals pushing that out there. So, you know, my ideas and ideas of many is just to have sort of this ability, this private-public partnerships to see where hashtags, memes, and certain types of information originate. Where they're from groups that already have sort of a, a lineage or a history of lying where their sourcing is crap. I mean, listen, if you're getting your sourcing from the revolver, you've probably not gone to the right place. You understand what I'm saying, Charlie? Oh, uh, yeah. And how yeah, about, I, I do understand. Right? <laughs> how about foreign interference, right? So so we're not going to look at where this disinformation actually comes from, even from private groups 
we're not going to look at accountability. We're not going to go out there maybe in, in, in university classes or high school or talk about sourcing or what disinformation looks like. The government can't do it. They just can't move fast enough. It's ridiculous to think the government can move fast enough. You know, And you know, we're going to have to have private-public partnerships or private entities that just allow like almost like a social media dashboard or a warning dashboard. Like, listen, if you see the hashtag COVID-1948, right, or all Jews are Nazis, which, you know, might originate from an Iranian, you know, troll farm. Maybe you should know it's coming from a gosh dang Iranian troll farm. And maybe maybe there should be journalists and people like that out there reporting on this instead of just, you know, trying to make people happy through journalism on stuff that doesn't matter anymore. And I think, you know, and I'm allowed to say that because I'm not in politics and I'm not trying to get a vote, Charlie. <laughs> so there you go. You know, when you talk about Roger Stone, when you talk about these kinds of connections, you're talking about this nexus between what Donald Trump was doing, the lying and the planning, the overturning, the the, the fake electors and the actual violent extremists here. And and there were a number of suggestions about how close they were getting. I, I think that there was, they were talking about Jason Miller bragging, well, I really whipped up the base and then linking to a website that had all kinds of, you know, violent rhetoric about revolution. Unbelievable. You know, bringing gallows because they don't need electricity, et cetera, all of this. Has the committee connected the dots between what the the attempt to overturn the election, Roger Stone, and these groups like the Oath Keeper. I mean, we are having these ongoing trials of exactly how violent, uh, how seditious this conspiracy was. Have we connected all of the dots between the various actors here, do you think? You know, I've said this before. One of the the issues the committee had was authorities. I don't know if you know this, Charlie, but they can't get certain types of data. Yeah. So when you're looking at call records, all we could get was to from and what type of communication medium they use, you know, codes for text messages and things like that. But I couldn't get geolocation or tower data. DOJ can. FBI can. So I think it's going to be up to them to even do more of the connective tissue for judicious conspiracy and those individuals that were communicating. However, we have tens of millions of lines of data on communication connectivity. And I think what the committee tried to do was showing the Roger Stone, you know, Danish video and trying to identify what he was saying. That was their attempt to do that. And I do believe it's very difficult. Let's give the committee a break here. It's very difficult to show how these, like when we did the monster and how these link maps actually connect to the American public. It's just very difficult. I think they could have done a little bit more on that. But again, I don't think we finalized how involved Roger Stone was, but also the Mike Flynn's, the Phil Waldron's, the Alex Jones, and even some of the other actors, you know, uh, you know, the cyber guys that were, you know, doing the Antrim stuff or some of those kind of things were actually in direct contact with Mark Meadows. And, you know, you're pretty smart about the Jason Miller stuff. Let me tell you this, Charlie, Jason Miller, not only was riling up the base, but he was one of the first to actually formulate the Antifa false flag strategy in the text message, to mm-hmm. right? Which I think should have been actually completely identified in this all the way down with Marjorie Taylor Greene doing that and other members of Congress, active members who were pushing the Antifa theory. So Jason Miller is central to the type of communications and comms that were coming out of there. So I think they did a fairly good job of connecting Roger Stone, but I think we need to do a lot more because you're looking at actors at the second and third tier beneath him that were really doing the, you know, the communication paths with multiple right-wing extremist groups. Okay, so let's talk about the book and um, how pissed off the committee is with your book. 
I mean, you know, let's give you a chance to respond to all of this. Sure. You know, there was that big story where the, the book came out. Ex-staffers unauthorized book about January 6th committee rankles members. They were all shocked about it. Committee staff members, you know, say they were uh, infuriated by uh, some of your comments earlier this summer during which you revealed private details about the staff's work, according to people involved with the investigation. Your appearances rattled others who work with the committee. And Riggleman eventually drew some anger from Representative Liz Cheney, who had initially pushed for his hiring, according to people familiar with the matter. So the sense that I'm getting is that there are people in the committee that are really angry with you and feel that somehow you have shivved them. So I want to give you a chance to push back on these dings. Yeah, well, they read the book now, so you saw that it it slowed down. The book did not shiv anybody. That's why I think you know, when we did the untold story, they everybody knew I was so so data centric, and obviously I had some issues with the committee uh, with funding for the fusion centers and technology. But what I was doing in the book wasn't any personal digs at anybody. Is that how do you make these decisions in a new environment? Which when people read the book, they're like, oh, half this book isn't about the committee at all. Yeah, it's about the blending of open source intelligence with data, and a guy who's done it for twenty years and and did this well before the committee. But why did you publish the book before they? were even done with their hearings? Well, I mean, for me, the data belongs to the American people, number one. Number two, when the book started to ship, we didn't even know there was a final hearing on September 28th. And, and you know, everybody's like, well, there's no such thing as coincidences. Yeah, there is. Uh, if you've been in analysis long enough, and I remember shaking my head going, son of a gun, you know, <laughs> it's like crap, you know, this, this doesn't look great. So sort of an accident. The committee should have been done by now. I'll just say that. It's been long enough. We've had plenty of data and evidence. But on the other hand, um, I think that what I say in the book about the data specifically and where we need to go is, is bigger than the committee. It's outside of the January 6th committee. And what I've done is, is much more than ever just the nine months I was in the January 6th committee. I've, I've been looking at this data well before, and, and I'll be looking at it afterwards. But I also wanted to, and I hoped that when people read this book, they would say, man, the committee's on the right track. They're doing the right thing which is what I say in the book, like, wow, look what the committee's accomplished. It's insanely good. Uh, they did it. And uh, so there's, there's sort of that balance. But uh, this book needed to get out now. And here's the last thing. Political violence is inherently political. And here we are on October 14th, and we're going to have the GOP take back the House. They're looking good to do that. And about the Senate, who knows, maybe. Uh, so what I'm trying to tell people right now is that if we don't get in front of this, if we don't go a little bit faster— we're in trouble. Now, slow and steady wins the race, but fast and steady beats slow and steady. And so this book came out in the time. We pushed it to the end of the year. And, and nobody on the committee, nobody in the committee knew you were working on this. Well, I said I was going to write a book back in April of 2021 in the New York Times. I was already doing a book by then. That's why a lot of this book isn't about the committee at all. It's about data. Um, so everybody knew I was doing a book when I came on on April 2021. It was in a New York Times article. I was asked about it. I said, yeah, it's not going to be specifically about the committee initially. But then when I saw the data that was coming in, I said, you know what? It's time to change directions. We we are in trouble. I want to get back to the substance of this, but I also want to give you a chance to respond to some of the, the, the pushback that, that you got. Because some of the book has been sort of a critique that the committee did not do X, Y, or Z or, or had not yet finished it. And they issued a statement um, when the book came out, and this is the way the Washington Post reported it, underscored Riggleman's limited knowledge of the investigation and threw cold water on Riggleman's suggestion that the committee was not pursuing evidence aggressively enough. 
He departed from the staff in April prior to our hearings and much of our most important investigative work, wrote committee spokesperson uh, Tim Mulvey. Since his department, the committee has run down all the leads and digested and analyzed all of the information that arose from his work. So um, your response. True? Untrue. No. Okay. No, they didn't. They don't even know all the leads and stuff because it's impossible to, if you don't have the proper equipment and enough analysts, it's very difficult to do it. And, you know, I don't think they were being purposefully untrue. I think they thought that, but that's that's not possible. Uh, we even have an example in the book I wrote about Kelly Sorrell trying to text the White House landlines. And so, if you've done an analysis, you don't even have to be an intelligence person, Charlie, to say, hey, that's pretty interesting. She probably had a prior contact. Like, who was it? That was never followed up. And guess what we found? We found that Kelly Sorrell was texting Andrew Giuliani. This should be all over the place. And this is because of the book. It's impossible if you don't have enough resources and you don't have enough analysts and you don't have the proper equipment to look at every single lead. That's not possible. They didn't, you can't follow up on all of them. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. So one of the things in the, you, you do describe in the book a disagreement that you had with Liz Cheney. And, it, and apparently it was uh, at one point a rather heated disagreement with Liz Cheney over how aggressively to pursue Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas. We don't have to get into all the weeds of, of all of that. But, you know, just give me a sense of, you know, like, are you and Liz still buds? Oh, I, I, we haven't talked in a while. I mean, I don't know if she hates me or not. I, I don't think about that enough. Done a great job with the committee. And I just don't have time to worry about everybody's feelings. I just don't. Leaving aside the feelings, I, I guess the debate between you and Liz Cheney seemed to boil down to she she thought that this would be a distraction to go off on the Thomases. You were arguing, no, this is really significant data. And Ginny Thomas's stuff is just mind blowing. I actually can see both points of view here is that you, you need to sort of, you know, stick with the the dominant narrative. On the other hand, the whole Ginny Thomas story is not irrelevant. So give me give me your, your sense of what role did Ginny Thomas play and how this debate between Denver Riggleman and Liz Cheney over this has played out. Yeah. And it's funny you said that in the book, I did understand where Liz was coming from, if you remember that. And I said that in the book, I wanted to give an honest representation that you did. Yes. You know, Liz had a point. Right. And uh, I had a point, too. Um, I think we were both right. But on this, Jenny Thomas is actually directly linked to the most powerful person in the Republican Party. That's Clarence Thomas. He has a lifetime appointment. Um, She has been able to monetize her access, help her bottom line. And also, she was the avatar for how QAnon conspiracies had saturated every level of the Republican Party. She was also an individual who was forwarding text messages from the chief of staff of Louis Gohmert and saying she was in direct contact with Jared Kushner. She also is a member of the Council for National Policy, who were also in the text messages and who are actually working with Eastman. She's also directly linked to Eastman. And then we find out later that she was sending emails supporting alternate electors to specific states, which looks like some of the states were directly out of Peter Navarro's immaculate deception. I think Jenny Thomas, the text messages we found were actually the most important text messages because it's insight what's happening in the radicalization pipeline out there. And it also could possibly link all three branches of government. You know, I I heard somebody the other day saying, well, this was an executive attack on the legislative branch. Right, Charlie? Mm -hmm. That's what people are saying. Well, there's a lot of people in the legislative branch that were helping in that in that regards when you're talking about stop the steal. And we still had 139 representatives in the House vote to object to the electors which is exactly what Jenny Thomas was talking about. 
And you also have her saying that, you know, the Biden crime family should be in Gitmo in this belief in, you know, blockchain, QFS blockchain watermarked ballots that there's some National Guard, you know, secret operation to go after the people who are delegitimizing, you know, who are stealing the election. I mean, this stuff is groundbreaking. So you have the wife of Supreme Court justice doing this. I think that is absolutely critical. And she should have been subpoenaed. That's just my opinion, you know, based on the data that I saw. I was just following the data, you know, like this is real. And, you know, we saw some other things initially I thought might be Clarence. It wasn't, but we found that out. We made sure. And so that's, that's it. That's it, Charlie. You know, is that we're just talking specifically about the data. And, and I try to stick to that. And I also try to do a fair representation that Liz had a point about the direction of it. This is bigger than Trump. This is much bigger than Trump. This stuff is baked in. Well, I mean, it is, it is really stunning, you know, to read, you know, the, the wife of a, of a U.S. Supreme Court justice is expressing her views about the stolen election, offering legal and congressional strategies for overturning the election, and then tweeting some of the wooliest, <laughs> most insane conspiracy theories. It is so bizarre. Nothing so far directly yeah. ties, you know, Justice Thomas himself to it. But you are skeptical that uh, the justice and uh, Ginny kept a really strict firewall that they never talked about any of this stuff that he that she that her insanity had no influence on him. You're a little skeptical about that. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit skeptical. You know, obviously, I sense your frustration in in catching up with with the data. You know, I share this frustration, but I also share sort of a this wider frustration that it feels now like we have all of this evidence saying you plan to overturn this election. You wanted to block the peaceful transfer of power. You fomented an insurrection. And the Trump world's response is, damn straight, we did it and we do it again. We're proud of it. Yes. You know, the night of January 6th, I, I keep coming back to this, the night of January 6th, about six o'clock at night, after all of the bloodshed, after all of the terror, after, you know, people had died, Donald Trump sat in the White House and tweeted out, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. So in case there was any doubt, right from the beginning, Donald Trump was planning to celebrate this, to praise it, to say he loves these people, that they were great patriots, and that the day the attack on the Capitol wouldn't live in infamy, but would remember, we should remember this day forever. Like what? You know, um, so I, I guess this is the problem, you know, does America give a shit about this? And Trump world seems to be sort of going, yeah, give us all the evidence of all the things we did. Yeah, we did all of that stuff and we're glad and we're proud of it. Right? I mean, how do you how do you how do you counter that? You know? <laughs> you know, when the cult leader speaks, people listen, right? You know, that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, I talk about sort of this undertone of sort of this self-identification of Christian nationalism which has been really interesting, right, Charlie? And also yeah. the apocalyptic good against evil battle. And I think, you know, a lot of individuals, you know, if they're very religious or they believe they have a direct link to the supernatural, um, a lot of conspiracy theorists, people that, you know, are 9-11 truthers or people that are sort of in tune with this or they're susceptible to conspiracies like Jenny, I think they're into this good against evil battle. Yeah. The Democrats are, 
evil Satanist cabal, you know, adrenochrome drinking, you know, people. And I've, I've said before, and I say this in the breach, I think we have to fight in the seams. I think we're looking at three to 5% of the right uh, that we can really adjust and readjust back to sort of facts-based thinking. But right now, you know, when you look at what's going on in the world here, you said something pretty profound as do people care. Uh, I was at a banquet last night with hundreds and hundreds of people. And out of that, I think maybe four to five were even aware there was a hearing uh, that day. And this is in Charlottesville. I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, the most important thing, and I think the committee has stressed this, is protecting democracy. And that's where I've been so proud of the committee. You know, but the thing for me, is that we almost need to take a data baseball bat, you know, and you have to go to these people and actually you have to engage with everybody singularly because in the DC sort of universe or in the big urban universes is completely separate from where I'm out here in rural Virginia. It's just, there's no comparison. And how do we reach those individuals? And I would tell you right now that it's so odd to talk about Fox talking points and stuff like that. But there was an attorney on last night that they'd already proven this. The subpoena actually gives Trump oxygen. It's a it's billows. And the issue that you have now, right, is that there are people out here, when I talk to them, they do say, and I had a person say this, Charlie, and I want to tell this to the audience, and I, I just, and why I wrote the book. They said, we'll take crazy over incompetent. Ooh. So... Give me your sense, and and you touched on this when you said, you know, if Donald Trump disappears, this is really, you know, goes much deeper. It is, it is baked deep, and I, I completely agree with you. If he disappeared tomorrow, it doesn't mean that we return to sanity. But, you know, there's been this ongoing debate about, you know, whether or not he should be held legally accountable. And there are some people, some people on our team who will say, yeah, I mean, you know, Trump is, is seditious, but... If the Department of Justice actually charges him, the blowback will be too much. Uh, it will be too divisive. It will tear apart the fabric of the country. I would argue that it, it will tear apart the country if he is not held accountable. But you, you follow this stuff very, very closely. I don't think we should have any illusions that a, you know, an indictment of Donald Trump would set off a firestorm, wouldn't it? I guess the question would be how big and how bad. What do you think? First of all, if the evidence, the data, and the facts support an indictment by the DOJ for Donald Trump, they should do it, regardless of what the blow might be. I agree. I, I know that might scare some people, and it should. But Charlie, if everybody's above the law or they're somehow treated specially on doing something so heinous, and you know, I, I've talked about this even with people like Jenny, but also the sitting congressmen and senators were that were on the text messages, how they were treated with kid gloves. That was another thing I had an issue with, even though I understand it, right? I can have an issue with something and still understand why not, right, Charlie? Which is, I think, something in political discourse when you're in tribes, you're like, well, Denver says this. Well, I'm not saying somebody did a bad job, damn it. I'm saying that there's other things I need to do. Okay, I- so if this happens, how? You know, because there is this growing anger yeah. out there. There is this militance. There is this rhetoric about political violence and civil war. What would we be looking at? What would happen? Massive blowback. If he's indicted, first of all, now he takes the mantle of political you know, martyr, right? Or political prisoner. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to happen. 
it's already happening. We talked about that rambling screed of hell that he put out, you know, just, you know, last night or, or whatnot. So I think we do see violence. I think we see specific parts of violence, maybe in state capitals, uh, things of that nature. But we also see this growing militancy and people thinking that the deep state is attacking you know, sort of the the working class Americans, right? Those people who believe in hard work and and not and aren't elites, right? I'll put that in quotes, right, brother. Um, so I think you're going to see some very bad things if he's indicted. But on the other hand, Charlie, I'm so in agreement with you. Is that is everything a political consideration? If it is, then we just be honest about it, and people will know that there's a different standard of justice depending on who you are. And I think long term, that's even more damaging than taking that initial hit for an indictment for Donald Trump if the facts and data lead that way. And I'm with you. Like, I, I don't know if I can agree with you anymore. How about that, Charlie? Okay. So you, you you mentioned that we're talking about, you know, three to five percent of the extreme conspiracy theorist radical is three to five percent of the right. So but what about the the sort of the passive fellow travelers, you know, the people that Jonathan Chait writes about where, you know, the 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 quote unquote normal Republicans that figure, well, I, I don't have to take these folks on. Um, I'll go along with them because I think I'll get my agenda and at some point we'll be able to control them. Would it make a difference if more quote unquote normie Republicans, more grown up Republicans, more responsible Republicans were to stand up and push back against this? Because right now, as you know, there's nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. Uh, what was the latest poll, Charlie? Over 60 percent of Republicans still want Trump to run? Yes. So what are we talking about on the normies? And by the way, out of that 60 percent, who answered that poll honestly? And, you know, when you look at it that way, there's a lot of people won't answer the phone because they think the deep state is tracking them. So what's the real number? And if it's 70 percent, 75 percent, how many normies are there? Yeah, that's good. Are those normies, Republican normies answering those poll questions like, yeah, I still want Trump to run. Yeah. You know, gas was five dollars a gallon four months ago. Hell, if I'm doing that, you know, inflation's at eight point five percent. CPI you know, is through the roof. Um, we're going into a recession and um, I'm not paying five dollars for a loaf of bread, damn it. And I've heard that. I think, yes, I think you do need to stand up, but it's really difficult. If you're in a committee meeting with 70 people and you're the only one who thinks the election wasn't stolen, are you going to stand up on the 69 other people and say, you know what? Listen, everybody, you need to stop huffing glue and realize this isn't true. Or how, how do you even approach that with that many people? I've had to do it. And it's not comfortable. Well, and, and therefore you, you get, you know, the what has now become, you know, old news, you know, the Ted Cruz's of the world who, you know, will sit there and, you know, have your wife called ugly and, and you suck up to the guy or or Mitch McConnell. What must be going on in his head? Uh, you know, he had a chance to hold uh, to hold Donald Trump accountable and, and he whiffed on it, even though he clearly understood exactly what Donald Trump did on January 6th. His wife, Elaine Chow, made it very, very clear, you know, that she resigned in protest that she could not, you know, do this anymore. Donald Trump is, you know, using anti-Chinese slurs against her. And Mitch McConnell is there basically going, yeah, you know, why should I speak out against this at this point? But you know, what is he, waiting for somebody else to come along? He's waiting for the sweet meteor of death, you know, to, to, to rescue us all from this? Wait, waiting for a patriotic <laughs> Big Mac, you know, hamburger to take out Donald? What? I don't know what these folks are thinking internally. Did you say the sweet meteor of death? I did. I'm going to have to write that down. That's very good. A SMOD, S-M-O-D, sweet meteor <laughs> The SMOD of death. theory. Yeah, I, think, yeah. um, I think what you're saying is polling. 
Charlie, you've been doing this longer than me, man. But man, if the polling at the top five things are not January 6th, which they're not, they're I mean, not. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to think it is. Um, if it's not, and McConnell's trying to hold the Senate, and he thinks there's a bigger vision for him, of course he's going to support Herschel Walker. Of course he's not going to go after Donald Trump, even though he comes after his wife. And that's the stuff that is fascinating. Because I'm telling you right now, if Donald Trump came after my wife, right, as a, in, in a political way or in a way like that, don't get me wrong, if I find you in an alley, we're throwing down. So that's just the way it is. And, and I don't get it. I just don't. But if they think there's a bigger sort of a good against evil vision here and that Trump is just temporary in the grand scheme of things. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, in this onion of ironies that we have here, and I know that Mona Chern wrote about this the other day, we have the right celebrating, you know, manhood and, you know, who is more manly, who is more masculine. Tucker Carlson, you know, keeps talking about, you know, the need for, you know, men to irradiate their testicles, et cetera. But what you're seeing is one Republican after another voluntarily emasculate themselves in order to get along with Donald Trump. And, and Donald Trump looks at these guys and he doesn't respect the Lindsey Grahams and Ted Cruz's, uh, you know, for for truckling under. He despises them. And they know he despises them, and yet they're willing to go along with it because they actually all hold their manhood so cheap. <laughs> I guess that's the thing now in the GOP is to give away your milk money as soon as the bully comes up to you in the schoolyard, right? And then, you know, after you give away your milk money, you go irradiate your testicles to make you feel better. I'm not quite sure how that works, you know? And maybe it is smod. Maybe it is a sweet meteor. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know if that hope is a viable course of strategy or a viable course. You know, I, I did have a, a commander said that hope, you know, isn't a viable course of action. And it's not. And so I just wonder, is somebody just going to stand up in a position like McConnell or in a position like McCarthy or in a position like Scalise, which is still, you know, is somebody going to stand up and say, listen, this isn't even the GOP anymore. We're sorry that we belly crawled for this freak show out in Florida. But I don't think that'll ever happen because you lose your election. No, you, you will lose your election. I mean, we, we've seen this. OK, I, I almost forgot to ask you about this because you also made some pretty big news over the last week because and, and again, just to give you know listeners a little bit of background. I mean, Denver, you have been, you know, a, a pretty strong, hardline conservative Republican throughout your entire career. Uh, there's no question about, you know, you know what what you stood for. And yet, and this was one of the big questions is, would, would people cross the line? You know, Adam Kinzinger has now made some endorsements across the line. And you, in Virginia, cut an ad for your fellow Democrat, Abigail Spanberger, who is one of the last remaining real centrists in Congress. So tell me about <laughs> that. How did that come about, that you are running ads for a Democratic incumbent member of Congress? I got to tell you, you know, Abby and I had a great relationship in Congress, you know, with rural broadband legislation. And we had some pretty feisty policy differences. But Abby is smart and she never backed down from me ever. We would actually argue on the House floor sometimes. She's like, I'm so disappointed in you. I said, you didn't like the Yoda commercial against the Democrats. And, you know, so we became friends because of that. Like we actually worked together. And then when you see somebody like she's running against that's an election denier and said awful things about, you know, pregnancy and rape. There's one thing that Abigail Spanberger is, and that's somebody who defends democracy, has taken an oath. We have a shared background in intelligence. 
and she is a decent, caring person, and and she does care. And I'm not, it's not even lip service, or I wouldn't do it. Charlie, you know me well enough. Like, if I think you're a shill or a fraud, you might as well get the hell out of the way. First, you're going to hate me anyway. So, I mean, there you go. Being first to the door on that was rough, though, just like being the first Republican against QAnon and the first to do a same-sex wedding. I feel like I get keep, get my face ripped off. And I think that's why after this committee experience and the book and what's happened to me in politics, you almost want to take a step back, right? And when I talk to you, Charlie, it's, it's with this sort of intellectual respect, and that's what I had with Abby, um, that you can disagree with me. But I want people to know I'm coming from it from a good heart. It's not to shill. You know, this book is a drop in the bucket for me. I didn't need it financially. And, you know, but I thought I had to do it because the military and the government trained me to do this. And I I felt compelled because I'm scared. And it's very personal to me. And five minutes after the 60 minutes hit, my wife received a call at Silverback. That was death threats and saying awful things about her and me because she was on the 60 Minutes. And I have had hundreds of death threats. I have had actually people, you know, do things to my vehicle. It's been, so I don't care if somebody says, oh, Denver, you know, must have timed it this way, or he didn't know everything or things like that. I know a damn lot because I lived it. And I lived it as a counterterrorism analyst. I lived it as a data analyst. I lived it behind the doors as a politician in the Freedom Caucus. I lived it when I was said I was changing the sexual orientation of children. I lived it with the death threats. I've lived it. I lived it on January 9th, three days after the frickin' January 6th insurrection. I sent a report to Liz Cheney that already identified the white supremacist groups and the data and what happened three days afterwards. So yeah, I am personally involved well before a committee, well before January 6th, about the dangers of radicalization and how we can use data to identify where that radicalization is coming from. That is it. And if people don't like it, don't buy the book. But if you like it, buy it. Give me a shot. Because when you read it, it's not a big critique. It's not some chatty Cathy BS. It's like, where can we go with people who've been trained in data? And the fact is, people who've been trained in data are attacking us. So that is why I wrote it, buddy. And Abby is down the line with this type of fact space. And tell me the truth. Abby has pissed off Nancy Pelosi many times. And um, she is very free thinking. And I think the free thinkers and the people who aren't afraid, right, to sort of say, hey, this was great, but maybe we can improve it here. Maybe this is a wrong way to go. Mm -hmm. Those are the people we need to serve, not just yes men and women underneath people like Trump. So maybe we ought to end on a bit of good news, Denver. Sure. It's the weekend. And you make your own whiskey. I do. Or is it bourbon? Do you make whiskey and bourbon? Bourbon and rye whiskey, honey rye whiskey. And we have a rum coming out now. So we're pretty excited about that. Okay. So, you know, life is still good when you can go out back and you have whiskey and rum and bourbon by the barrel. By the barrel. You're right. I mean, by the barrel. (laughs) It's amazing how much whiskey we have. I would just let you know. (laughs) Okay. Denver Riggleman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. The book is The Breach. Always appreciate you coming on the Bulwark Podcast. Charlie, I appreciate you. Thank you for your intellectual honesty and being the guy you are. I appreciate you. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again. 